Hello and welcome. This is Smart Prosperity, the podcast, a bi-weekly show about the green economy in Canada, the current affairs, the politics, the business, the technology, and the ideas at the intersection of the environment and the economy. I'm your host, Eric Campbell. Well, hallelujah. It's July. Restrictions are lifting, which means I've been allowed back into the podcast studio. And we've got a super special summertime podcast lineup for you over the next few weeks. Also, we're starting a Smart Prosperity Summer Book Club. Every guest that appears on the show this summer will be asked what book or article or podcast is currently grabbing their attention and why. It's going to be fun. I hope you'll continue to tune in from your cottages, your campsites, your jogs, your bike rides, your home office. Wherever you are, there's a lot to talk about in the green economy this summer. On today's show, the costs of extreme heat as temperature records get melted around the world. What do we now know about the costs to our economy, our critical infrastructure, and our health? After that, Mike Moffat caps it off with his list of five other things happening in the green economy this week. That's today's agenda. Let's get started. Tonight, Canada records its highest temperature ever again. Had you ever heard of Lytton, British Columbia? Before last week, probably not. It's a small village sitting somewhere between Vancouver and Kamloops, population 249, according to Google. And last week, it became the canary in the coal mine when it recorded Canada's all-time highest temperature three days in a row, topping out at 49.5 degrees Celsius. Prior to that, Canada had never before seen a temperature over 45 degrees Celsius. Well, scientists said we'd have more extreme weather, and more extreme weather is what we're having. Over the last few weeks, temperature records have been shattered around the world as extreme heat has enveloped parts of the globe. Heat records for the month of June were broken in Mexico, Finland, Russia, South Africa, California, Nevada, Washington, Oregon, and in British Columbia, Alberta, Yukon, and the Northwest Territories, More than 103 heat records were broken, 70 of them in a single day, according to the CBC, with some temperatures reaching almost 20 degrees Celsius above normal. What happened? What is with the heat? And more importantly, as we brace ourselves for a future of worsening extreme heat events, what impacts does extreme heat have on our economy, on our infrastructure, our health, and our lives? Today, I'm speaking with two experts and one mayor to find out. Let's begin with what on Earth happened, or rather, what happened on planet Earth the past few weeks. To describe the extreme heat event that we faced, I'm welcoming Sarah Gibbons. Sarah is a staff writer for the National Geographic, where she has been covering the heat dome story. I'm reaching her at her home in Washington, D.C. Hi, Sarah. Thanks for joining. Thank you for having me. Sarah, from a weather perspective, what happened in June? So what happened in June was what can be described as a combination of bad weather luck and climate change. So on the weather front, you had over the Pacific Northwest and southwestern Canada what meteorologists describe as a heat dome. And a heat dome is essentially an area of high pressure that sort of parks 
over a certain region. This one sort of pinched off from a jet stream that became very wavy over the area. But essentially, this heat dome, um, it's like a a trapping lid, like a, a lid on top of a jar. So when a heat wave moved into this part of the country or this part of the continent, it couldn't really rise. We all know heat rises. This heat couldn't rise. Mm. It just kept sort of cooking the ground beneath it, um, creating warmer and warmer conditions. And that's why we're seeing so many record-shattering temperatures across um, the U.S. and Canada. Now, Sarah, how much of this weather is attributable to climate change in your view? Yeah, that's, um, you know, kind of pinpointing those specifics there can be a little bit challenging. But um, to get into the La Nina event a little bit more, when you have a La Nina event, which is a typical um, seasonal occurrence, you have La Nina years, you have El Nino years. Um, When you have a La Nina year, you can expect to see cooler waters in the eastern Pacific and warmer waters in the western Pacific over near sort of Indonesia and Australia. Um, The difference between those two temperatures, the warm and the cool, creates wind that moves those warm western waters west towards uh, towards us. Um, Eventually, it gets caught in the jet stream, and just sort of depending on how the jet stream is moving on that time of year, that warm weather can end up anywhere along the west coast. But that's really kind of a normal um, weather occurrence. What we see with climate change is that it just sort of turns the dial up on a lot of these weather extremes. Um, So, you know, in a lot of these regions, average temperatures have increased. I think in this part of the world, it's about three degrees Fahrenheit on average, which I think is about 1.7 degrees Celsius. So what that means is that if you kind of think of, you know, weather um, as existing on a bell curve, you have your average temperatures that have moved over slightly three degrees, but then you have your extreme temperatures that have moved over three degrees. And we're really seeing, um, you know, those average temperatures combined with this heat dome effect create this sort of um, suffocating mass of hot air that we've seen over this region for the past few days. Uh, now, I want to get back to the meteorology. I've, I've been noticing that meteorologists around the world, from, from Russia to, to Canada and the U.S., have not been mincing words. There, there's obviously a strong linkage to climate change happening here, and, and the meteorologists mm-hmm. aren't afraid to, to talk about it. Um, now, of course, extreme heat is one thing, but it can be linked to other extreme weather events. I'm, I'm thinking droughts. Um, and, and of course, you know, some say this is a warning of a, a very dangerous wildfire season uh, to come. Um, is this just the beginning of a dangerous summer ahead? Unfortunately, it may very well be. I mean, it's a little hard to say at the moment sort of exactly how, how things will play out because there's always sort of a, an element of random chance um, that goes into, you know, how a fire starts or, or something like that. But we can probably expect to see pretty bad conditions ahead. Um, Last year in California, for example, it was a historically devastating wildfire season where uh, more than 4 million acres burned. Um, This year, they've already seen 13,000 acres burn. Um, And I think this heat wave is going to not really help anyone. I mean, um, when you have heat like this, it dries out vegetation and you know, shrouds and bushes and, and and all of that stuff is just sort of like tinder and fuel for, for wildfires. So um, it's something that we're going to have to be very, very mindful of as summer progresses. 
Sarah, thank you for, for tuning in from Washington, D.C. I understand that you've got your, uh, your own heat wave happening on the East Coast. <laughs> I hope that uh, you stay cool over the next few days and a uh, few weeks. Thank you. That was Sarah Gibbons, a writer for National Geographic. We have a link to Sarah's articles on the so-called Heat Dome on this episode's website at podcast.smartprosperity.ca. Now let's talk about the impacts here in Canada. I mentioned off the top the village of Lytton, British Columbia, which now has the unwelcome distinction of having experienced Canada's highest temperatures, a record previously held by the towns of Yellowgrass and Middale, Saskatchewan. I wanted to hear from the front lines of this extreme heat, so I put in a call with the mayor of Lytton, British Columbia, Jan Olderman. Here's some of what Jan had to say. Jan, I'm reaching you on the third straight day that Lytton has set heat records for Canada. Uh, how are things like? How are things looking today? Um, I'd like the I'd like this heat uh, wave to to end. Um, you know, when it's as hot as it is, it's uh, stay inside during the day and only venture out. You know, you know when the sun sets and early in the morning. Is this, is this, I hear Lytton has a, a reputation for heat. Um, these are obviously kind of off the charts. Um, are, are your residents prepared for this kind of thing? Um, prepared, you know, like, like it, in the summertime here, 30, you know, 7, 38, 39 degrees is not uncommon. To say that we're prepared for 49 um i I don't think you really prepare for it it's something you sort of endure yeah how does how how does a village like Lytton prepare for for more extreme heat events and extreme weather events uh like you're experiencing right now our cooling centers i think are going to be you know be a um uh, a service that we're going to need to um, supply in the future that our swimming pool will, you know, need to open up earlier in the year. Um, and I think we'll also need to manage our water supply hmm. in a different manner. Are, are you noticing drops in, uh, in the water supply? Well, we, we rely on, a, on the snowpacks. And during this heat wave, the heat um, at higher elevations was also extreme. So our snowpacks are melting, you know, faster than normal, which means that we'll be switching over to our wells earlier. And then you have to be concerned whether your wells can produce enough water to, you know, for, you know, for the people in town. Okay, and and you know the the reports right now are, are that this uh, this heat dome is traveling eastwards. Um, are, are you? Does that kind of are, are there signs of relief uh, over the next uh, few days for for Lytton? Um, you know, one of the things is Lytton um, is in the mountains. We are surrounded by forests, and these you know with these extreme temperatures, you can. Uh, see the stress in the, you know, in the vegetation, mm. and it's extremely dry. And yesterday we had a second 
wildfire start. And so now, of course, the air quality is deteriorating. Oh, no. So so yeah. matters are, are being made worse. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Jan, thank you. I, I appreciate you talking to me uh, on the fly like this. Um, and, you know, I, I wish you some rain um, and some cooler air. And in the meantime, I hope uh, everybody in your village uh, uh, stays safe. Thank you. And, uh, I, you know, I hope everyone, uh, you know, that's listening to your podcast has, has a great summer. Those are clips from my phone call with Jan Olderman, mayor of the village of Lytton, British Columbia. Editor's note, that interview with Jan Polderman was conducted on June 30th, only hours before news outlets reported an uncontrollable wildfire that swept through Lytton, destroying the village and claiming two lives. Now, you heard Jan Olderman reference the impacts of extreme heat on the village's water supply. These are the kinds of impacts that the Canadian Institute for Climate Choices has been documenting as part of its ongoing research into the costs of climate change. To speak about the impacts of extreme heat on our economy, critical infrastructure, and on our health, I'm welcoming Rick Smith. Rick has just recently taken on his new role as Executive Director of the Canadian Institute for Climate Choices. It's an arm's-length research organization providing advice on climate change to the Government of Canada. Prior to this new role, Rick spent eight years as Executive Director of the Broadbent Institute. Rick, thanks for making the Smart Prosperity Podcast one of your first interviews. Thanks, Eric. It's a pleasure. Now, Rick, as I mentioned, Climate Choices has been doing this research uh, on the costs of climate change. After this latest heat wave, some of those costs are now in sharper focus for many Canadians. What do we know about the costs of extreme heat? Well, what we've tried to do in our reports is uh, project, estimate different scenarios based on what may or may not happen in terms of further carbon pollution. So we have a low emission scenario uh, that obviously we're hoping uh, the world is closer to uh, at mid-century and then the end of the century. And then we have a high emission scenario, which is the, you know, if, if carbon mitigation hopelessly fails scenario. Uh, and what we find is, is that even in the low emission scenario, uh, a certain degree of warming is locked in. So in our low emission scenario, for instance, uh, uh, High heat days, dangerous heat days across our country uh, are going to range from something like 70, 75 to 100 days a year uh, by, uh, on average, by later this century. Hmm. Uh, so that, that's, that's about uh, 10, to, uh, 10 to 14 straight days of dangerously hot weather each summer. Hmm. So one thing that we now know is that a certain amount of this, uh, this heating is locked in. And uh, we're going to have to start planning around that uh, as a country. Uh, that's going to have an impact on people's health. Uh, we looked at our reports at, um, at four diseases, coronary heart disease, stroke, hypertensive disease, and diabetes. All of these have a strong relationship with temperature. Uh, and what we found, uh, even in the low emission scenario, is that heat-related hospitalizations go up by about 20% by mid-century. Uh, and uh, and go up further than that by the end of the century. So we're going to see an impact on the healthcare system. 
uh, we're going to also see a, an impact on productivity. So especially in uh, industrial sectors and, and, and jobs where people are working outside, uh, construction, manufacturing, uh, we're going to see a decline in productivity based just on a hotter temperature. It's harder for people to work. Hmm. Um, and now let, let's talk about infrastructure. Uh, you know, just in this latest heat wave, we've uh, heard lots of stories about uh, failing infrastructure, uh, mm-hmm. roads buckling and, you know, vinyl on uh, housing melting. Um, how, what do we need to do as a country to prepare our infrastructure for uh, extreme heat like this? Well, for, for starters, we need to we need to stop looking at it as a one off. Or we need to, you know, we need to stop being surprised that these things are happening. Uh-huh. Uh, what our what our modeling is showing is that even in a low emission scenario, which is of course what what we want the world to look like, uh, or we want to be closer to as we as we mitigate carbon pollution, uh, even in a low emission scenario, a certain a certain amount of this increased heating is locked in, and so we're going to have more of these dangerous heat days in, in the in the future, and, and some parts of the country are going to be worse impacted than others. Uh, so we need to plan. And, uh, you know, when we, when we actually plan for things as a society, we can accomplish great things together. And when it comes to infrastructure, that means more than just building a seawall or building flood protection. Uh, it also means uh, improved housing, especially for, for vulnerable people. Uh, it means making sure that, uh, that uh, lower-income folks have access to air conditioning. Uh, it means more shade in our public spaces. Uh, that needs to, I mean, we need to plant those trees now so that they can start to grow. Uh, I mean, it can mean more investments in primary care uh, to ensure that our system is ready for, for uh, heat-related crises when they hit. Mm-hmm. Um, so th- uh, if, we, if we adopt that mentality that, uh, that this is an, eventual, an eventuality that uh, is, is likely and that we can plan around, we can, we can start making some progress. Hmm. Now, Rick, the extreme heat that Canada experienced uh, just over the past few weeks um, is part of a broader trend of extreme weather events that Canada uh, has been facing over the past several years and which uh, your work has projected that we'll be facing more of. What, you know, what are the costs associated with uh, this broader trend of extreme weather events? Well, there, you know, well, let's talk about some numbers. Uh, and there's no question that that these kinds of extreme weather events, heat just being uh, one of them, these types of events are costing all of us more. So, as as one example, uh, over the past decade, from 2010 to 2019, the cost of weather-related insured losses was twice as high as from 1983. To 2009, mm. so so there's there's a huge increase in insurance claims uh, as a result of uh, as a result of uh, extreme weather. Um, the average cost, if we drill down a little bit on that, the average cost per disaster has jumped an incredible 1,250 percent since the 1970s. Wow! Uh, so just a just an a, skyrocketing increase uh, if you break uh, the, the extreme weather events down uh, per incident mm. uh, and then if we if we if we zoom back out to the impact on our economy as a whole uh, it's five percent of GDP so the average cost of weather related disasters each year 
has risen to the equivalent of five uh, percent of uh, of our country's annual gross domestic product. So just just an, an enormous hit on our economy every year. Huh. Uh, and the, n- none of this. I mean, so we're talking about economic numbers here. None of this, of course, uh, this kind of uh, aggregate. Uh, these aggregate statistics don't really do justice to the terrible personal toll that these extreme weather events are taking on Canadian families, Canadian communities, so the Canadians who are getting sick and dying. Right. Uh, that's that's actually what's important uh, uh, at this moment. Rick, uh, really great to talk to you. Thanks for being on the show today. Thanks a lot, Eric. Appreciate it. That was Rick Smith, Executive Director of the Canadian Institute for Climate Choices. For a link to that organization's work on the costs of climate change, go to this episode's webpage at podcast.smartprosperity.ca. Hey, and incidentally, I did ask Sarah and Rick what books they had to recommend for the Smart Prosperity Podcast Summertime Book Club. Here's what Sarah's looking forward to reading. So one book that I am so excited to read is this book called Finding the Mother Tree by a forest ecologist named Suzanne Simard. Um, but it's all about just sort of how trees communicate with each other in this like really fascinating and surprising way. And here is what Rick recommends. Well, I love uh, uh, Elizabeth uh, Colbert and her sixth, sixth extinction uh, as a biologist uh, uh, really hit home for me. So I'm, I'm on one of the things on my list this summer uh, is uh, a white sky, the nature of the, of the future. Uh, her uh, her new book on on climate change and her uh, talking to uh, key scientists, experts, uh, champions around the world who are really uh, trying to zero in on some solutions. Now, there's a lot happening in the green economy every week, too much for me to cover on my own. And so at the end of every episode, I turn to my colleague, Mike Moffat, to recap everything I missed. Mike is Senior Director here at Smart Prosperity Institute, and here he is with five other things happening in the green economy this week. I'm Mike Moffat, and here are the five things that I'm watching this week. Number one, by 2035, every single car and light-duty truck sold in Canada will need to be electric or another kind of zero-emission vehicle. This announcement is part of an effort to transition Canada away from fossil fuel vehicles, which account for one quarter of all of Canada's greenhouse gas emissions. Currently, less than 4% of new vehicle sales in Canada are electric and zero-emission. Number two, aluminum giants Alcoa and Rio Tinto have broken ground on a project in Quebec that will eliminate all direct greenhouse gas emissions from the aluminum smelting process. The emerging low carbon technology could help reduce the 1.1 billion tons of carbon pollution coming from aluminum production worldwide every year. Number three, Algoma's proposed electric arc furnace project at its steelmaking facility in Sault Ste. Marie, Ontario, got a shot in the arm as the federal government announced it will contribute $420 million to the project. By 2030, the project will cut emissions by 3 million tons per year. Number four, up to 410 million people could become at risk from sea level rise as a result of climate change, according to a new study published in the journal Nature Communications. It projects that at-risk population could grow by more than 50% by the end of the century. Number five, 
The federal government announced it will close a majority of commercial salmon fisheries along Canada's west coast. The move comes as experts observe an up to 90% drop in wild salmon populations, which is being attributed to overfishing and deterioration of fish habitats. I'm Mike Moffat, and those are the five things that I'm watching this week. Thank you, Mike. For a second glance at those stories, Mike has them written out for you. Check them out at podcast.smartprosperity.ca. Well, that's it for another episode of Smart Prosperity, the podcast. If you liked it, please tell your colleagues and your friends. Listeners are what keeps this nonprofit podcast in business. In the meantime, I want to remind you that the views shared on this podcast are not necessarily those of Smart Prosperity Institute. They are, however, always evidence-based. I'm Eric Campbell. I'm broadcasting from the lands traditionally stewarded by the Algonquin Anishinaabe people. Thanks again for listening. The next episode is out July 21st.